Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Violet Podcast. In this episode, given the current humanitarian situation in Afghanistan, we'll be discussing the history of the last few decades in the country. As usual, the podcast is not designed to tell the news, but rather to give a little insight and analysis behind the headlines. Uh, So please do bear in mind that the majority of this episode was recorded uh, during the week before the bombing attack at Kabul airport that claimed 73 lives. As this is an ongoing story and as the situation continues to change and develop, we are happy to answer any further questions that listeners may have that we might fail to address in this episode. So please do get in contact with us either through Twitter to our handle at underscore the violet underscore to our email address, which is contact.theviolet at gmail.com or to our website www.theviolet.net. Hopefully one of the things that Violet listeners have picked up over the last uh, many, many episodes is the importance of integrating history and a historical understanding into analysis of current events. So when we're discussing the current situation in Afghanistan, it's important to talk about how we got here um, and how Afghanistan arrived in the current situation it finds itself. And given that the current situation is, of course, uh, the American... Uh, military pulling out of the country, we should probably start our story with the American military coming into the country. But even then, a history of American-occupied Afghanistan is probably not enough to put into full context uh, the Taliban and what the Taliban is doing now. So we should briefly look at what Afghanistan uh, looked like at a very quick potted history of Afghanistan pre-2001. So an, an epithet which is often applied to Afghanistan is that it is the graveyard of empires. It's, it's a place where major empires invade uh, and find that they can't take the country and they, they fall apart. Um, really, this has only happened to one empire, the Soviet Union. So it is something of a misnomer. Um, the other reason I think this is not a particularly useful concept, the graveyard of empires, uh, is because Afghanistan itself has been the core of many powerful empires and kingdoms throughout its history, uh, such as the Hotak and the Durrani uh, dynasties. Um, and even the Mughal dynasty, which came to rule most of India, originated in what is now present-day Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is not a land which has always been in chaos, always falling apart, always being, always fighting off external invaders um, because of its legendary fierce tribal ferocity. Uh, it is not inherently ungovernable. It has been at the center of you know, many civilizations um, and has been at the center of trading networks for hundreds and thousands of years. The Soviet Union entered Afghanistan um, in 1980 um, after a communist government which had launched a coup uh, and overthrown the previous kingdom of Afghanistan had taken power uh, and was finding itself unable to, to maintain control on its own, of its own accord. Uh, And so the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in order to prop up that government. Uh, That invasion was hugely destructive, uh, causing the death of around 2 million Afghan citizens, um, which is substantially more than the last 20 years of conflict. During this conflict, the US funded a group called the Mujahideen. Uh, The Mujahideen were not a group that were created by the US. Uh, This was a pre-existing group. 
Uh, and it's also important to note that the Mujahideen was not ideologically monolithic. They didn't all believe the same thing. Uh, some were royalists, uh, some were even some were even communists uh, who just disliked the Soviet Union. Uh, some were very uh, religiously motivated, uh, others were secular. It was not a unitary movement. Uh, but the US funded the Mujahideen as a counterweight to the Soviets during the Cold War. After the Soviet withdrawal, um, in, in the late uh, 1980s, uh, Afghanistan fell into chaos and there was a period known as the warlords uh, period where various factions and various warlords of all ideological stripes controlled various fragments of Afghan territory and set up their own local uh, political systems. Eventually, the Taliban emerged as the strongest of these factions. Uh, the Taliban were not the same as the Mujahideen, but a lot of... Uh, Taliban commanders and figures uh, were part of the Mujahideen, although not in its entirety. Uh, the Taliban were those Mujahideen who had crossed the border into Pakistan, uh, were radicalized, received a lot of financial assistance from both the Saudis and the Pakistani uh, secret service, the ISI, and then returned to Afghanistan uh, to try and establish this, what they perceived as a fundamentalist Islamist state. Uh, in 1996, the Taliban captured Kabul um, and established the Emirates of Afghanistan, um, thereby controlling most of the country. So I think something that will um, surprise a lot of listeners, and which actually surprised me when I learned it, is that the Taliban was only actually in power in Afghanistan for five years, from 1996 through to the uh, US invasion in 2001. Um, and so we can set the final scene for that that invasion in 2001. What did Taliban rule of Afghanistan for those five years look like? So Taliban rule in, in Afghanistan in a nutshell was, was brutally uh, repressive. The Taliban implemented what they perceived as a fundamental interpretation or a correct interpretation of Sharia or Islamic law, um, but obviously bypassing a lot of the key elements uh, of Islamic law as uh, theoretically laid out by various scholars. Uh, one good example of this is, is, for example, there is a punishment in the Sharia for uh, adultery. Uh, which is which is stoning, but there are loads of kind of restrictions around this. Uh, it requires four witnesses of of kind of upright moral character, and and clearly if you're witnessing adultery, you're probably not of upright moral character in the first place. Um, and there are multiple opportunities for confession uh, and and recanting and uh, getting out of the punishment. So in in the theoretical sense, it's practically impossible to enforce stoning as a punishment in the Sharia. Um, but the Taliban did implement this quite widely. Uh, there are many stories and even in some cases photos and videos of executions in, in sports stadiums uh, and, and public arenas. So Taliban rule was generally very repressive, uh, not just to women, um, but to, to anyone who did not subscribe to this fundamentalist ideology. Uh, and especially to minorities uh, such as the uh, Hazara community, which are, which are largely Shia, uh, in Afghanistan, they also suffered a lot of persecution. To be clear, stoning is never an appropriate punishment for any crime, but the point is that even by the standards of uh, Sharia law, which is at best illiberal and outdated, the Taliban took a particularly illiberal, repressive and violent interpretation of it. Now we arrive at 2001 and the American invasion, and as usual, as soon as uh, 
American foreign policy is involved in a story about anywhere, um, a whole host of conspiracy theories uh, come out and a whole host of opinions because it's front page news all around the world and lots of different people um, come up with ideas about why things happen without necessarily reading through um, good analysis of it and a lot of poor analysis is available out there. So we all know that America does invade Afghanistan in 2001. The pertinent question to ask at this juncture is why? Uh, I feel like a good place to start is why they didn't. Uh, so firstly, they didn't invade for the oil because Afghanistan has practically no oil. It does have a lot of oil relative to its oil consumption, but that isn't a lot uh, in, in absolute terms. Um, Secondly, something that I've seen a lot on social media recently is that America invaded for resources. And Afghanistan does have um, you know, a lot of mineral wealth, uh, for example, lithium. And for, for thousands of years, uh, Afghanistan has been one of the world's major sources for turquoise, for example. Um, but this doesn't really hold up either. Uh, the US hasn't done a great deal to set up mining operations in Afghanistan over the past 20 years. Uh, they haven't really extracted many minerals at all. And if that was the main purpose, they wouldn't have left in the first place. Uh, in fact, China has done a lot more to establish mining operations in Afghanistan uh, over the past decade than the US. Fundamentally, the reason that the US invaded Afghanistan was because on, on September the 11th, uh, Al-Qaeda, another Islamist fundamentalist organization, um, conducted a terrorist attack on the United States flying two planes into the Twin Towers, uh, one into the uh, into the Pentagon, and they attempted to crash a fourth into the Capitol building uh, or the US Parliament building, but failed to do so. At the time, bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda, was being harbored by the Taliban in Afghanistan. And after the 9-11 attacks happened, the Bush government asked the Taliban to hand uh, bin Laden over to the US government. The Taliban refused to do so, they said that this would via the, the Pashtun Code of Hospitality uh, and that they couldn't hand him over to the US. They did eventually say that were sufficient evidence of his guilt to be provided, then they might consider handing him over to a third country. Um, but the US took quite a hardline approach here and said basically hand him over to us directly now or we will invade, uh, destroy all the Al-Qaeda bases in Afghanistan and capture bin Laden ourselves. With regards to this decision by the Bush government, the most important thing to remember, I think, is that most foreign policy decisions are not made with regards to a grand uh, foreign policy narrative, but rather with an eye to how domestic audiences or the domestic electorate would perceive it. And in the aftermath of 9-11, the pressure on Bush was intense, was huge to look like he was doing something uh, and that he was retaliating and that he was securing American interests and keeping Americans safe. In short, he thought it would make him electorally popular. Uh, and it did. In 2002, Bush became the only post-war American president uh, whose party won more seats in the midterm elections than they held at the time of the presidential election. Historically, presidents' parties lose seats in the midterm elections. That's the only instance in which a president's party has increased uh, its vote share, or sorry, rather its seat share, in the Senate uh, and the House of Representatives. I do think another part of the answer, which is, which is harder to quantify, uh, but it's still important to lay out, is that there was a lot of U uh, lobbying of the US government done by defense corporations 
such as Lockheed Martin in the build-up to the invasion of Afghanistan because those companies would obviously profit uh, from the war, uh, even if the US government and the US as a whole didn't. Uh, and those voices were quite prominent within the Republican Party and within the US cabinet. So two two sort of lessons to draw out of that for, for thinking about um, political analysis and foreign policy analysis in, in general, not, not in the specific case of Afghanistan. Uh, number one is that in the modern world, access to resources is far cheaper and far easier through economic means than through military means. Um, America ended up spending over a trillion dollars on its military operations in Afghanistan over the last 20 years. Um, If a superpower, if a large, rich country is interested in the resources of a smaller country, invading is an extraordinarily inefficient way to do that. Um, And if you want to look at an example of a Uh, large country extracting resources in a potentially unfair way from smaller countries. Actually, China is the much better model at the moment than America. Um, And China has not invaded anywhere for its minerals. It tends to do so. Um, It tends to uh, gain favourable trade deals through diplomatic means and um, promises of loans. And that's a whole other podcast. Uh, nowhere has invaded another country for its resources for an extraordinarily long time. It's a very uh, sort of industrial revolution way of thinking about foreign policy. The other rule to draw out of this is that uh, a good cynical rule of thumb for thinking about the actions of governments in democratic countries is that their incentive to think about it in a really sort of cold uh, logical economic way their incentive is to be re-elected um, and that's true of all forms of policy including foreign policy now for some reason uh, people tend to come up with grand sweeping narratives of history when discussing foreign policy but ultimately for a democratic government their objective is to be re-elected regardless of which type of policy we're talking about. And so it's not 100% accurate, but it's usually not too far wide of the mark when discussing why um, the American government chose to do X, why the British government chose to do Y, uh, even if it happens across across the world in another country, uh, it's not too far wide of the mark to say, well, they thought it would be popular. They believed, whether accurately or inaccurately, Uh, when we look back at these events with the 2020 hindsight of history, they believed at the time that that was what the public wanted from them and that was what was electorally advantageous to them. And it's a boring answer to say that George W. Bush invaded Afghanistan because he thought he would gain votes from it. Um, But it makes a lot more sense than many of the other more flashy, more exciting potential answers. So if we're taking that as the short answer for why the US invaded, um, a lot of Americans were looking for someone to blame for 9-11 and looking for some sort of vengeance. George W. Bush thought it would be a good idea to invade Afghanistan, and of course the Taliban were harbouring Osama bin Laden. That explains the invasion, but that doesn't explain why the American military became embroiled in Afghanistan and uh, why the American military stayed alongside its allies in Afghanistan for a whole 20 years. Certainly, um, up until 2011, 
uh, America sort of has the excuse of chasing down Osama bin Laden, but he was killed in 2011, and it's 10 years later that the American military has actually left. So why uh, did this somewhat knee-jerk reaction to invade Afghanistan end up uh, being a 20-year process? So after the initial uh, US operation in Afghanistan, uh, in which they invaded, overthrew the, the Taliban government, uh, instituted a new government, uh, and started hunting down the majority of al-Qaeda bases, uh, Operation Anaconda, there was a renewed Taliban insurgency from 2003 onwards uh, under Mullah Omar, who, who reorganized the Taliban and relaunched uh, a rebellion against US forces. And so the reason in that sense that, that America's state was because to, to have left would have meant the, the Taliban uh, immediately retaking control of the country. Uh, worth noting at this point, it wasn't just the US there, uh, it was NATO as a whole. So the initial invasion was conducted by NATO countries uh, because the US invoked Article 5, uh, the uh, kind of collective right to self-defense and retaliation uh, against an enemy. Um, and then by the ISAF, which was an international force composing uh, or comprised of both US forces and NATO forces and other countries too. Uh, so the first reason is really that the US believed that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda could be totally eradicated from Afghanistan. Uh, and in hindsight, it seems like that was either wishful or they didn't really commit enough forces to making that specific aim happen. The US also had the belief that given enough time and resources and investment, they could build a self-sufficient uh, liberal, pro-American, democratic, uh, pro-capitalist Afghan state, uh, which would be able to resist any future Taliban advances, uh, both politically and economically, and in the sense of having a sufficiently strong Afghan army and Afghan security forces to resist the Taliban or any other uh, Islamist fundamentalist organizations which stepped into the gap. Um, and by 2014, when it was clear that the main global threat of Islamist terrorism was coming from IS in uh, Iraq and Syria rather than in Afghanistan. By that point, the US had actually wound down the vast bulk of its military presence uh, in Afghanistan, um, having very few troops on the ground um, and really contributing for the most part air support, uh, civilian contractors and intelligence. Although retrospectively given as a justification for or, or an explanation of the US staying, uh, the idea of building liberalism or protecting uh, women's rights or protecting liberal society, although in some cases, as we'll discuss later, this was incidentally a benefit of, uh, of the US's continued presence in Afghanistan, it was not at all really in the blueprint of the US initially staying. Um, they didn't stay because they thought that Afghan women needed protecting, that is more of a retrospective justification. So this lens of uh, electoral advantage of, of government doing what they think is the most popular thing to do um, does hold up when we look back at what happened in Afghanistan, that if the American government went into Afghanistan under the uh, guise that it was going to sort of dispose of the Islamic terrorism that that posed a threat to America uh, after 9-11. It needed to uh, stay in Afghanistan for long enough, certainly to kill bin Laden uh, and to claim that Al-Qaeda was, if not totally eradicated, then at least seriously weakened to the point where it would not be a threat. 
Um, and that after 2014 and the emergence of Daesh in the Middle East and the Levant, it becomes clear that the um, American intervention in Afghanistan is not going to be able to uh, achieve that goal um, and is not potentially not working uh, as far as achieving that objective is concerned. So why does it then take another six, seven years after that point um, for the US to actually fully leave from the drawdown in 2014 to now? And what is kind of the final straw? What is the change in the calculus of the US government that leads to the present situation? So since the US drawdown in 2014, there was a troop surge between 2009 and 2014 uh, under Barack Obama. Um, And then in 2014, the US began withdrawing most of its forces from Afghanistan. Uh, From that point onwards, the US was suffering only, and this is not to, to, to kind of trivialize any death at all but the US was suffering less than 50 casualties or even less than 30 casualties uh, from 2015 onwards so this was not a particularly costly US presence uh, either in terms of the military footprint or in terms of the casualties or in terms of the economic cost one way of framing this is that the US left in 2021 seven years after the drawdown simply because they got bought um, and because um, they couldn't maintain the focus on Afghanistan uh, and they felt again that it was no longer electorally popular. So Trump uh, promised to uh, to withdraw from Afghanistan uh, as part of his America first isolationist platform in the 2016 election uh, and he said that he would withdraw and he would take home all the troops and he would take home all the money and spend it in some vague unspecified way uh, within the US instead. Um, And one of the reasons that a lot of U.S. citizens have bought into this is because in the U.S. occupation or in the the period of U.S. presence, the U.S. had been unable to build popular support for first uh, Hamid Karzai's uh, administration and then Ashraf Ghani's administration. Largely, that was because they did not invest enough attention into it. Uh, They focused too much on the military aspect. They didn't care about corruption uh, because they believed that building up a strong military was the most important thing uh, and making the state stand on its own was the most important thing uh, but failing to recognize that if you don't deal with corruption then the state has very little legitimacy people don't trust it people won't engage with it people won't buy into it i mean ashraf ghani the uh, the most recent president is is reported by some sources to have fled the country uh, with over a hundred million pounds of cash um, and there were there were many reports of um, military commanders not paying their troops or money being embezzled at various levels of administration. So fundamentally, the U.S. felt like it was unable to build a self-sufficient Afghan state. And first Trump and then Biden felt that if they continue to do this, it would be really unpopular with the American electorate and felt like it was not worth the time. It wasn't worth the investment, that it was better to cut the losses and, and to run Uh, and that this would be well received by the American people. Part of it was also, as we've previously said, the the cost. Um, The US has spent well over a trillion dollars in in pursuing military action in Afghanistan. That is more than the total mineral worth uh, which is estimated to be in Afghanistan. Uh, So even if you take the most cynical view that the US was only there to nickel the resources, there is no way they could pay that back. given the amount they've already spent. 
again, it comes back to that boring answer that U.S. policy in Afghanistan is largely dictated by what the American electorate want, or rather, what U.S. presidents and politicians feel that the American electorate want. And then once the U.S. decided that it was leaving, all U.S. allies also decided they were leaving because no one was going to stay uh, without the U.S. providing the lion's share of support. Of course, when we're analysing foreign policy through this lens of uh, what leaders believe their people want, we have to remember not to commit the sort of uh, groupthink fallacy and assume that the desires of the uh, American public are A, singular, or B, unchanging. And so, again, when we're using this lens, we need to remember that there are multiple different uh, groups within the American public who will have believed different things, who will have uh, wanted different uh, actions from their government uh, in Afghanistan, uh, who will attribute different levels of importance to Afghanistan compared to uh, other issues in, in politics, um, and, and perhaps most crucially, will change their minds over time. And what we definitely have seen over the last 20 years is a, uh, a lack of um, Islamist terrorism in America following 9-11. Uh, I think, and, and this is larger conjecture, but I think there was a large uh, fear amongst the American public following 9-11 that this was merely the harbinger for a sort of coming war, um, and that's not happened. There's been no terrorist incident remotely on the same scale as 9-11 uh, since. Um, so first of all, I think the perceived threat that led to the American invasion in the first place has not materialized. Uh, but second, America has definitely seen over the large tw last 20 years a um, shift to a more isolationist point of view um, as summarised neatly and succinctly if somewhat disgustingly by the America First slogan um, that Americans are increasingly uh, prioritising domestic policy issues over foreign policy issues and so uh, regardless of what Americans' opinions on Afghanistan might be uh, the electoral calculus for modern-day American presidents is increasingly uh, based on domestic issues, not based on um, foreign policy issues, certainly not based on Afghanistan, uh, and therefore they see or saw the uh, continued operations in Afghanistan as simply a waste of money. At this point, I think it's important to say that uh, there is another common fallacy in uh, in social sciences that the way in which we think things will turn out and the way in which we analyse things is often conflated with the way in which we'd like things to be. Uh, and the way in which the world is and the way in which we'd like it to be are very different things. So whilst this is the lens that we're going to use to analyse the American uh, invasion and to explain why the American invasion happened, it's not necessarily the lens that we'd like to look at the world through uh, from a moral point of view in terms of working out uh, whether something was good or bad. Um, in terms of looking at all the events in Afghanistan and Af Afghan history, um, the lens we should look at it through is, as with any country, the welfare of the people there. Um, what matters in, Af in Afghan history, what matters in Afghanistan, is that the people of Afghanistan are able to live in a uh, peaceful, stable, prosperous, uh, free country. Um, and 
when we're trying to evaluate these events and uh, decide where our stance is on them, we need to think about the welfare of Afghan citizens and we need to come at it from that point of view. So before we discuss the uh, Taliban's recent military successes and the future uh, and what the future might look like in Afghanistan, we need to think about we need to go back through that history briefly and look at it from the point of view of the welfare of the average Afghan citizen. So over the last 25 years, taking into account the first Taliban government and the American intervention and the period of rule under the American-supported government, how has the life uh, and the welfare of the average Afghan citizen changed? There's a few headline stats I'm going to reel off first. Uh, but those disguise quite uh, complex underlying trends and various nuances in the data, uh, which we'll explore afterwards. Uh, so first of all, um, life expectancy increased in Afghanistan uh, between 2001 and 2020 uh, from about 56 to 64. Um, under uh, that period, or during that period as well, the maternal mortality rate halved, uh, and there were significant improvements in various metrics relating to female emancipation such as uh, literacy and education. And there was also a general uptick uh, in literacy and education rates for, for all Afghan citizens as well. To unpick that data a little more, so life expectancy did go up from 56 to 64. Um, but if you look at trends of Afghan life expectancy from the 19, 1960s onwards, it is a fairly straight line. So this does not necessarily suggest that the US uh, invasion and that the US supported governments caused an increase in life expectancy. It looks like this was a trend that was already happening. On the topic of life expectancy and uh, you know life and death for, for Afghan citizens, uh, during that period, 2001 to 2021, uh, nearly 50,000 Afghan citizens were killed. Uh, that is rather smaller than the around, the around 2 million killed uh, during the Soviet invasion, but that is still a considerable number and, and tragedy. The bulk of those deaths were as a result of anti-government forces. This is not just the Taliban, but any uh, kind of militia or force which did not uh, subscribe to the sovereignty of the, um, the Karzai and the Ghani administrations. Uh, but a lot of those citizens were also killed in indiscriminate uh, pro-government or, or U.S. bombings, and there is also a huge uh, litany of evidence that the U.S. or U.S. soldiers committed war crimes in Afghanistan, uh, such as trophy hunting Afghan citizens, uh, torture, and uh, refusal uh, to cooperate with the ICC on various war crimes charges. So, what this data seems to suggest is that although the U.S. has killed a lot of Afghan citizens, uh, it did not kill as many as the Tal Taliban. And in any case, uh, not to exonerate either the US or the Afghan government or the Northern Alliance uh, or the Taliban of any war crimes or completely unjustifiable killings. But the effect of uh, the US invasion and the events of the subsequent 20 years on Afghan life expectancy seems to have been very little. So when we're looking at statistics for a particular country, regardless of what kind of statistics we're, we're talking about, whether it's political or economic or, or welfare or whatever, um, there are two sort of forms of analysis that we can do. One is time series. So we take a particular statistic and we look at it every year over a certain period of time and we, we see what the trend is and we see how the trend changes uh, depending on sort of various events that happen during that time period. And the other is, is cross-sectional. So we can look at um, 
the, that statistic in one particular place, in one particular country, and compare that to other countries and see how that country is doing compared to them. But to really get a sense of, of uh, how a country is doing, of what a, what's affected a country, we need to do both at the same time and put both of these together. So we need to look at the trends over time, but we also need to compare those trends to what is happening in other countries and what is happening in other um, comparable places. So what's notable about the sort of uh, welfare of Afghans over the last 20, 30 years, uh, statistically, is that whilst the trend is generally upwards, the trend is not upwards uh, more significantly than the countries surrounding Afghanistan, than countries in a similar uh, state to Afghanistan. Um, and Afghanistan still remains behind uh, the countries around it. So if we look at something like life expectancy, a graph of life expectancy in Afghanistan over the last 30 years shows a gentle rise with no increase or decrease in the rate of uh, in the rate of change due to the American occupation but it also shows that Afghanistan is still lagging behind other countries in the region such as Pakistan Tajikistan or Iran equally if we look at something like the human development index we get exactly the same trend there is no obvious effect of American occupation either in a positive or in a negative light uh, compared to the previous trend, but Afghanistan still remains significantly behind uh, the countries around it that we might compare it with. The only statistics in which there is a significant change in Afghanistan compared to uh, particularly Pakistan and Iran are with regards to female empowerment. So the female literacy rate takes an uptick in Afghanistan uh, during the American occupation, which is not um, mirrored by a change in Pakistan or in Iran, as does the female labour force participation rate. And in fact, uh, in 2017, Afghanistan's female labour force participation rate rose above that of Pakistan and Iran. That brings us to the current situation. And one of the most notable um, things about the current situation is the speed with which the Taliban's occupation of Kabul and of Afghanistan as a whole has followed the American uh, military pullout. And whilst there were uh, a number of articles in good news sites uh, over the previous few weeks leading up to this saying that the Taliban were gaining ground and warning uh, that Taliban control of Afghanistan was a possibility over the next over the coming uh, weeks and months, Joe Biden was probably right in saying that nobody expected the collapse of the Afghan government's military and the Taliban takeover to be this swift. So the next obvious question that we need to ask is why was the Taliban's victory so quick and so simple and so seemingly easy? So one of the most uh, common explanations that I've seen in the news and in social media recently uh, is simply that the Afghan government and the Afghan military were incompetent. Uh, they didn't work, they were cowards, they, they ran away from the fight. Uh, and in fact, this is the explanation that, uh, to some degree, Joe Biden seems to have advanced in uh, press conferences in, in the US. Largely, I would say this is based on a lazy racial stereotype of non-Western fighters being very basic and inept and inexperienced, 
Um, and clearly this is wrong because the Taliban are also uh, Afghans, although trained in Pakistan rather than by US forces, also Afghans, and they've overtaken the country within a matter of weeks. So it's clearly not a matter of some kind of racial inferiority. Uh, but equally, I think it is deeply unfair to the Afghan security forces to describe them as inept and incompetent. Um, as I've previously mentioned since 2015, US casualties in Iraq have been around 30 a year, uh, whereas Afghan security force casualties have been several thousand, uh, and in some years over 10,000 a year. Um, and for the last five, six years, five, six, seven years, uh, since the 2014 uh, general US withdrawal, it has been the Afghan army bearing the brunt of the fight against the Taliban. Um, and therefore, there, there is no reason to suggest that they're cowards or that they're unwilling to fight. They clearly have been fighting for several years already. One of the, the crucial elements of the most recent pullout by the US is that it wasn't just military forces that were pulled out, uh, even though, as I've said, they haven't had much of a functioning combat role recently, but also civilian contractors for a lot of the crucial high-tech parts of the Afghan military. And the Afghan military was taught to fight along the lines of US military doctrine. Uh, that is to say, they were taught to maneuver troops from one spot to another very quickly, uh, using um, helicopters and planes and air travel. Uh, they were taught to operate on the basis of very precise uh, intel provided by drones and aircraft and use that to inform their military maneuvers. All of that was swept out from under the Afghan army when the US left. And the US withdrawal was... I would say unprecedented. Uh, there have been a lot of comparisons to Vietnam, for example, but the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think, was unprecedented in the way that it was conducted entirely without the prior knowledge of any US allies. Uh, not only the, the British and the French and other NATO countries, but also Afghanistan. Um, there were a lot of reports, for example, from Bagram Air Base in, in Afghanistan, one of the US's key air bases, uh, where the Afghan soldiers and pilots woke up in the morning and the US was gone and they'd just taken their equipment um, and they hadn't given any prior notice. And this, as a whole, created an utterly demoralizing situation where Afghan security forces felt the rug was pulled out from under them and totally lost the, the will to fight. Uh, alongside that was the longer-term problem of corruption, so as, again, we previously mentioned, there was, or there, there is a lot of corruption within the Afghan government. Um, there's loads of stories of commanders taking pay that's meant for troops and using it for themselves, uh, or weapons going, going missing, um, or, or generally troops not being paid their dues. Um, and combined with the, the speed and the abruptness of the US withdrawal, uh, I think this is sufficient to explain why the Afghan armed forces crumbled so quickly. Uh, not because of cowardice and not because of incompetence, but simply because the structural basis for the army was removed so quickly um, in a way that was almost certain to cause uh, instability and collapse. As well as the uh, weaknesses of the Afghan government and the operation of the Afghan government in supporting its own military, we also have to look at the uh, tactics used by the Taliban and the reasons why those were successful. And uh, the argument put forward by The Economist this week is that Afghanistan is a highly decentralised, um, highly inefficient state. Uh, and Ashraf Ghani, the uh, until recently president of 
Afghanistan have been focusing on trying to uh, centralize Afghanistan, trying to bring most of Afghanistan under government control, uh, and in doing so, trying to remove political power from um, local political leaders in far-flung rural parts of the country. Um, and this wasn't particularly popular, and therefore the Taliban was able to gain political support in a lot of uh, rural areas far from Kabul. Um, there was also an issue with uh, local military leaders not being paid um, by the uh, Afghan government, which meant the Taliban was able to gain uh, some of the territory that they've conquered over the last few weeks, not by fighting, but merely by um, paying the local military um, in exchange for them not putting up any resistance, and that the uh, Taliban has done a very good job of using the poor organization by the Afghan government of the Afghan military to uh, gain ground very quickly. Um, another point that I think is relevant here is that I've seen a lot of people on, on all sides of the political spectrum and from a variety of countries argue recently that the speed of the Taliban victory shows that the Taliban have popular legitimacy and are widely accepted by the Afghan people. Uh, it must be remembered that this is a military conquest and that given the fact it's a military conquest, it does not necessarily follow that the majority of Afghan people support it. This is something that has imp has been imposed by Afghanistan by force, uh, just as the Soviets attempted to impose a regime by force and the US attempted to impose a regime at the beginning by force. It does not follow that a Taliban regime imposed by force has, has popular consent. Uh, and in fact, the most recent survey or the most recent um, comprehensive survey done of the Afghan population suggests that the Taliban only has around 13% support uh, across the country. This is very much a group which has seized power through military force rather than through popular consent. And there's another sort of uh, fuzzy rule of thumb of um, international relations and, and international politics that we can pull out of that, which is that in order to gain control of a country, there's a general fallacy believed by a lot of people who are fortunate enough to live in democratic countries that governments must have the support of the majority of their population because in a democratic country it is uh, necessary in a peaceful democratic country to have the support of, if not a majority, then a large minority of the population uh, in elections in order to become government. The more autocratic, um, the less developed uh, and the weaker the institutions in a country, the less that becomes true. And in countries with very weak institutions like Afghanistan, where uh, political power changes hands through military force uh, in the majority of cases, it is possible, uh, not just possible, in fact, it is the, the norm for political power to transfer between governments that have a very small amount of um, political acceptance among the general population but which have political support among the small minority of local political leaders, uh, militias and the military that allow them to keep hold of that political power. And so there is some truth in the idea that the Taliban has taken uh, power with, quote, popular support, unquote, in the sense that the Taliban has used support among local militia groups in rural parts of Afghanistan to take power, but that does not translate into a general support for the Taliban among uh, the Afghan citizenry. One of our listeners did ask, and uh, paraphrasing here, 
to what extent can we accept the Taliban's government under the argument that there are cultural differences and democracy is a Western ideal that we can't uh, superimpose on Afghanistan? Um, and I understand why lots of people might think this, but I think it's important to remember there is no such thing as a monolithic Afghan will, something that all Afghans want, something that all Afghans believe in uh, and adhere to. There are millions uh, of, of Afghan citizens and we must pay attention to them. The only way to find out what Afghan citizens want is, is through democracy and through votes and through popular consent. Uh, and what the Taliban have done here is to effectively launch a military coup to take over the government through force uh, and to not give people a choice uh, to, to express what they want. If fundamentally you believe that what people want in a system, in any political system matters, then the only way to deliver that is through democracy. The only way that you can believe that the Taliban's military takeover is, is legitimate uh, is if you believe that what people want in any political system or country doesn't matter uh, and there is a higher ideal that must be imposed upon them. That is coherent in certain political worldviews, but you can't then claim that this is something all Afghans want or that this is what Afghanistan wants. The only way to determine that is fundamentally through a democratic vote. Hopefully we covered this in reasonable quality in the uh, democracy episode, but the point for me here is that democracy is not a cultural phenomenon because it's simply a process for um, establishing the will of a group of people. Now, as soon as I say that, I'm aware I'm contradicting something I've said lots of times before, which is that any group of people, uh, whether it's a political organisation, whether it's a country, whether it's a group of people who all identify in, in the same gender or race or whatever, um, there is no such thing as a, a will of a group. Every individual is different, every individual has different uh, beliefs and, and preferences and life situations. Um, but the point is that democracy is the closest system we can get to uncovering those. Uh, and in fact, the awareness of that complexity shows you why democracy is so necessary, because uh, a democratic system, when we think, um, and again, I'm, I'm treading on the toes of the democracy episode here, but when we think of democracy as a, as a spectrum, think of uh, systems as more or less democratic rather than democracy as a binary, we can see that it's, it's necessary to include as many people as possible in the political decision-making process in order to get anywhere near an understanding of those uh, complex needs and desires of all of those people. And the less democratic and more autocratic that a system is, the smaller the key constituency is within that polity that make, gets to make the important decisions. And so any political position that assumes that Afghans might prefer the Taliban as a more authentically Afghan uh, government compared to one which is propped up by the American government is um, superimposing and assuming a particular preference on behalf of Afghan people, which we cannot know for sure exists and which we could only uh, approximate to knowing via a democratic process, which the Taliban are certainly not going to provide. That brings us to what's going on at the moment, and as usual, this podcast is not about explaining uh, the sort of basic facts of, of the current situation. There are plenty of other news sites that will do that for you. Uh, we need to go a little step beyond, and the question that is on uh, a lot of people's minds now, uh, or certainly should be, is what will 
uh, the new Taliban government in Afghanistan look like? It's less than a week old as we record this podcast, so we can't say anything uh, for certain, and everything that we're about to say in response to this question is conjecture. Um, but we do need to think about what Afghanistan will look like going forward. So one optimistic or perhaps naive, depending on how you look at it, view is that the Taliban will not be as bad as, quote, last time, uh, as in when they ruled the country between 1996 and 2001. Um there's a lot of uh, of, of evidence, uh, both from the Taliban and from press reports of the Taliban, that um, they will not uh, try to be as brutally repressive as their last period in governance. I think one of the major caveats to this is that we have to be careful about what the Taliban are saying and also distinguish between different factions of the Taliban. Um, like any political movement, the Taliban are not monolithic. There are relatively more moderate and more extreme factions. And the more moderate faction, uh, which was until recently based in Doha in Qatar, um, the leadership of the Taliban, is very PR savvy um, and knows that in order for a Taliban regime to survive, it needs some broad level of international acceptance. This is very different from the reality on the ground uh, of the Taliban commanders and military, uh, military leaders who have been conquering and sweeping up Afghan territory. Uh, so one of the things we have to be aware of is that the Taliban being now more PR savvy doesn't necessarily equate to a change in their fundamental practices. Uh, already there has been a lot of news coming out of Afghanistan about uh, massacres against uh, minority communities like the Hazaras, like the Shias, uh, but there have also been contradictory reports that Shias have been able to gather peacefully for specific Shia Muslim festivals like Ashura. So the picture on the ground at the moment is very unclear, it's very fuzzy, we can't draw firm, unambiguous conclusions. But one one thing that I would say is that we should treat this with a degree of cynicism uh, and be aware that how the Taliban behave whilst they are in the international media eye is different from how they may behave once that uh, spotlight is off them. It's also, of course, the case that the Taliban has only just taken control of Afghanistan and that it has not yet been able to enforce uh, whatever its series of laws is going to be, whatever its series of policies is going to be on the whole country. And so the seemingly contradictory reports and the seemingly confusing um, differences coming out of different stories of Afghanistan is potentially also down to the fact that uh, the Taliban has not gained full control of various different parts of Afghanistan yet, and that as time goes on and the government becomes more entrenched and the government gains more control of the country, um, those reports will start to, uh, or, or those stories will start to converge um, into a more cohesive narrative. The other thing that I'd like to say about um, the uh, Stories or the the opinion that is throwing being thrown around on the internet that the Taliban are quote not as bad as last time unquote um, is that there is also an extremely low bar set by the original Taliban government and that um, examples of Taliban uh, officials doing things that they wouldn't have done last time such as and this is a real example you can look this up um, speaking to female journalists in official press conferences rather than ignoring them and um, demanding to only speak to male journalists um, 
is an extremely low bar and the fact that the Taliban have been willing or certain members of the Taliban have been willing to speak to female journalists um, is only a slightly, slightly better policy than their previous policy and does not um, by any means show that this is a fully reformed political organisation and this is going to be a far more liberal government than it was in 1996. Fundamentally, aside from all of the other international relations and foreign policy and global politics implications, uh, I think the most important thing to draw out of this in, in terms of the consequences of Taliban rule is that it will be a tragedy for ordinary Afghans. And regardless of what you may think about the, the period of US influence in Afghanistan, and there were many flaws uh, in that and um, many atrocities were committed, Taliban rule is not going to be a step forward. Uh, it is not going to improve uh, prosperity. It will not improve um, education for both men and women. Uh, and indeed, it will, or it seems to already be, a step backwards for female emancipation. It's worth noting that the Taliban were already a break on human development in the region, in the areas of uh, Afghanistan that they have controlled or have had a large amount of influence in over the last 10, 20 years. Um, for example, the last portion of the world where polio cases still exist um, are in Taliban-controlled areas of southern Afghanistan and the Pakistan-Afghanistan border, um, largely because of Taliban misinformation about vaccines and Taliban uh, refusal to allow medical teams in to vaccinate children. And if the Taliban can be the one political force in the world that is preventing the eradication of polio, which was eradicated from um, the majority of the world in the 1980s and 90s, um, especially in the current climate with the current discussion about vaccines going on, um, it's rather worrying, it's terrifying in fact to think um, what the Taliban might do for the uh, welfare of ordinary Afghan citizens once in charge of the entire country rather than just a small portion of it. Still talking about the future and, and still unable to come to any firm uh, conclusions or definitive facts here, but another thing that we need to um, think about is what the reaction of uh, Western powers, of the US and allies in Europe and the UK, um, are going to do about this situation because the messages so far have been rather muddled. There hasn't really been long enough for a uh, sort of unified response to be put in place. Um, and what the US and the UK and Europe do now uh, in terms of their Afghanistan policy and how they deal with the Taliban um, and the Afghan citizens looking to get out of Afghanistan at the moment um, is going to have a massive effect on Afghanistan and Afghan welfare down the line. In terms of what the the US and the EU and NATO and the UK will do, the most likely answer is simply walk away. They will try to wash their hands of this and not get involved. A second question is what they should do. So not what will probably happen in our opinion, but what is the morally right thing to do um, and what will give the greatest welfare to Afghan citizens and to the world. The US, the EU, the UK, NATO countries any country that is able to should accept as many Afghan refugees as possible. And recently in the news, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the UK and the US taking out from Afghanistan people who worked with the US military, who were translators, who were guides, and so on. 
yes, it is important to save those people. Yes, it is important to save Afghan women and children. It is equally important to save Afghan men who have had no uh, interaction of any kind uh, with the with the NATO military mission in Afghanistan. Afghan lives count because and they matter because they are human lives. And so any country which is safe should accept as many Afghan citizens uh, and as many Afghan refugees as possible. A second thing to consider, which has also been mooted as a response uh, recently by several governments, is that sanctions should be imposed upon Afghanistan um, and that humanitarian aid should be cut uh, because the Taliban are an illegitimate uh, terrorist government. And yes, at the Violet, we do believe that the Taliban are an illegitimate government who have seized power through military force uh, and that they shouldn't be negotiated with slash accepted. But blanket sanctions do much more harm to ordinary people than they do to political leaders. If any sanctions are to be uh, targeted against Afghanistan and the Taliban, they should be focused specifically on individuals and not on the country as a whole. It is imperative, especially at this time of Taliban rule, that humanitarian aid continues and that it continues through channels uh, which are not open to corruption and the Taliban skimming off that money for their own ends. Uh, But that is not an argument for humanitarian aid to be cut completely. In the long term, if a extraordinarily poor um, developing country with terrible standards of living like Afghanistan is going to improve and if the 30 odd million people of Afghanistan are ever going to um, achieve the standard of living that they deserve as human beings then the standard of governance the institutions and the political system of Afghanistan are going to have to change now um, the way in which that happens is through providing um political and economic power to ordinary Afghan people. Um, To some extent, the American occupation did try to do that, but somewhat half-heartedly, and as we've discussed, it was not the uh, main objective in any way, and it was not something that was carried out competently. If anything, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the clear massive demand by Afghan citizens to escape the government that is now uh, coming for them presents a second opportunity for the West to provide that sort of power to ordinary Afghan citizens. And the way to provide that without any of the moral complications of military intervention and military occupation is through providing a home to Afghan refugees by providing the population of Afghanistan that doesn't want to be under um, Taliban rule, that wants to escape Afghanistan, that wants to live in a functioning uh, country under a functioning government where they have a basic standard of living, is to simply give it to them um, and to develop an Afghan diaspora that has the economic means and the experience of living in a democratic country that will allow them to put pressure on the Taliban government to reform over time. Um, And the desperate situation at Kabul airport, um, the clear demand by a huge number of Afghan citizens for that, and the uh, pressure from the outside world, from the media that is watching everything that is going on in Kabul at the moment, means that in a strange way, Uh, the next few weeks are the perfect opportunity for 
the Western world to do the best thing that it possibly can do for Afghanistan and for Afghan citizens uh, and to provide that standard of governments and that standard of living to as many Afghans as possible um, in the shortest time possible by accepting as many refugees as they can. Various Western governments, to take the example of the UK, have already promised to take Afghan refugees, but the numbers are, are currently, to be frank, pathetic. Um, the UK government has pledged to take 20,000 Afghans, and I think that's over several years, uh, not in a single year, out of a population of about 35 million. Um, the UK can take far more refugees than that. Um, we are not overcrowded. Um, our economy will not crash. At this point, as as we can see, there are there have been the offshots of COVID and Brexit, and we need workers. We need uh, we need doctors. We need nurses. We need uh, drivers. Um, these are not people who will be a drain on our resources. Uh, and even if there were not the economic argument, there is certainly the moral argument to save these people from a horrific fate. Um, so, in our opinion, at the Violet whilst there have been missed opportunities in the past and we obviously can't go back and reverse past decisions the best thing the uk or the us could do now is to take as many afghan refugees as possible um, in order to safeguard the welfare of as many afghans as possible And that seems a good point on which to end the episode. We're aware that there is a lot more to say on this topic. We haven't touched on the international relations fallout from the events of this week, uh, nor have we really got into depth on refugee resettlement and the myth of overcrowding um, or humanitarian intervention or terrorism. So if you have any other questions or comments or topics that you'd like us to address in future episodes, please do get in touch with us through all the usual channels. Thanks for listening.